dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're toppling your TBRs with Greek mythology-inspired novels and retellings. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. I've had such a good bookish week between recordings with you, our novel pairings book club this week. I had a Fiction Matters book club this week. It's just been a week full of bookish conversation, and I've been loving it. And today's episode is right in your literary niche, so that's exciting too. This month with our Patreon members, we read Olympus, Texas by Stacey Swan. It was the first time that we chose a contemporary book to read as our book club pick, which was really fun. And we really just wanted to do something a little bit different, give ourselves a bit of a break from talking about classics, even though we love that. And then we got so lucky and Stacy Swan, the author, offered to join us for our book club discussion, which was amazing. It was, it, it was so much fun. She was absolutely delightful, so engaging. She had so much to share about her writing process, the publishing process, which I don't think any of us were expecting to get such a great behind the scenes peek at all of that. And of course, her inspirations for writing a mythology-inspired novel, Olympus, Texas. There is no town in Texas called Olympus. I mean, there might be some small one somewhere, but Olympus is from her imagination. And it, of course, refers to Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods lived. And her characters in this complicated family novel are based on Greek and Roman mythological characters. And she incorporates, I think she said, four core myths into the story. And it's a really fun modern retelling. And her spin on the myths is just really, really good. I mean, it's it's good when you read it, but then hearing her talk about it, I think gave all of us even more of an appreciation for the way she crafted this novel. Oh, absolutely. I I loved hearing about her inspiration and how she did projects on mythology in elementary school, which I very much connected to, (laughs) loved that. And just learning a little bit more about this book, because it's quite a bit different from other mythology retellings that are coming out right now. We are kind of in this moment where Greek mythology retellings seems to be emerging almost as its own subgenre and seems like we get at least two or three each year that are, you know, coming out and getting attention. And it's that's just so interesting to me. I, I don't really have any ideas why that is the case, other than the fact that Song of Achilles and Circe sold so well, <laughs> so now publishers are snapping them up. But Olympus, Texas is is different. There isn't magic in, in the book. It's not set in the ancient world. And so just as we had kind of been talking about today's episode, I think it'll be fun to look at different types of myth retellings because they're certainly not all the same. 
as I was looking at sort of backlist titles to possibly include here and just trying to get the lay of the land in terms of Greek mythology inspired novels and in some cases Roman mythology, but we're focusing on the Greek today. I I felt like there was so much. There's so much there. They're just not all popular. And there are a lot of new ones. And I do think, I don't think it is more complicated than the fact that Circe and Song of Achilles were huge popular hits. I mean, I think I think the publishing industry often as book lovers, we forget that it's a business, mm-hmm. but I think the popularity of those books is truly the spark that lit the fire. And I don't know if you saw that Song of Achilles went viral on TikTok and then ended up on the bestseller list again. So it's it's still selling really well. And so I think, I don't know, that's, I just think that's a consistent pattern with publishing that we can point to when we do see, well, this topic seems to be coming up a lot, or "Hmm, this style seems really popular. It's because that one book hit it big and struck a chord with audiences and we know it'll sell. Oh, totally. And I think like within the, the business landscape as well, Kids who grew up reading Percy Jackson are adult readers now. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are a lot of readers like primed for this and excited about it already. And so it makes it even even easier. I mean, it makes total sense to me that Song of Achilles would blow up on on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just (laughs) of course. Um, But yeah, mythology retellings are like as old as stories are. I, I think I mentioned this in our Odyssey episode That was episode 18, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that one yet, but that I got to go to a workshop with Madeline Miller, where one of the things she talked about was that there's no such thing as the original myth. Every myth is a retelling, and they're just stories that people would tell each other, and then eventually some people wrote them down, and then those got expanded upon and retold, you know, even like Sophocles and those Greek playwrights and poets were retelling myths that they had heard. And then we get classics like Ulysses by James Joyce, where he's retelling myths. So it's just, it's been around forever. And it's fascinating to see which myths continue to be retold. New ones that are kind of emerging as more interesting to people. And then the ways writers go about exploring those myths in a new way. We are on record on the podcast saying several times, I mean, I can think of at least three episodes where we have said we love retellings, partly just because we are such literature nerds and we just like to see how an author takes a story and changes it. And partly because we are, I mean, even nerdier beyond that, like we're just so interested in stories and how they're connected and how we can pair them with each other, for example. Um, But we have said that, and I, I don't remember, I feel like both of us have articulated this at some point, that, you know, we're not really that picky about retellings in terms of, does it feel true to the, well, like you said, it can't feel true to a myth or like in terms of, does it feel true to a story? As long as it's really well told in its own right, we really enjoy the the novel. So a lot of the books that we talk about today 
whether they are books that we've read and loved or books that are sitting on our to-be-read lists, will reflect that, where they are retellings, but they also stand in their own right as just great, great works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really appreciated how Stacy Swan talked about that in our book club, where she said she was pretty committed to letting herself diverge away from some of the myths if that's where her story and characters wanted to go. And I think that when authors give themselves a little bit more room to play with, sometimes it results in the best myth retellings that show you something new about the original story and, you know, offer a more modern or just a maybe more relevant theme to contemporary readers. So I'm really excited to hear what retellings and myth-inspired novels you brought to the podcast today. And I hope our listeners find some good ones to pick up themselves. And we are upfront recommending Olympus, Texas by Stacey Swan for sure. And Circe and Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller are also great if you haven't gotten to them yet and you're waiting for a push. Those are, are really excellent novels as well. All right, let's get into some titles. The first book that I would like to chat about is A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. This one I listened to on audio. I know you read it too, Sarah. Did you read it on paper or audio? Paper. Yeah, so I'm curious how the audio was. I really liked the audio because this is told basically in interconnected short stories. At least that's very much how it sounded to me. And so in listening to it, I didn't feel like I necessarily had to keep track of all the characters Mm because there's a lot and I think it's hard to track. I just was able to feel like I was just being told a good story. And so I really liked it in that format and would recommend it. The narrator was really good. But A Thousand Ships is told from the perspective of Trojan women. And this is... After the Trojan War has ended, after their city has been pillaged, and they are grappling with trauma, they are trying to process all of the events of the past and figure out how to move forward with their families. So some popular Greek characters show up, like um, Achilles, Penelope, and Odysseus, some goddesses, like you get the feeling and you get the context for all of this, but the stories really center on the women and their families and their lives. And I did not read Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, but I've seen some reviews that suggest that they liked A Thousand Ships better in terms of getting a women's perspective on the Trojan War and just enjoying the the storytelling a bit more. So that's A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. If you like interconnected short stories, if you like audiobooks that just kind of feel like you can let the story wash over you and listen to it without feeling like you need to track every character and keep track of everything. It's just almost like bedtime stories, just with a lot of blood and gore. (laughs) I think A Thousand Ships might be one to pick up. I agree. And I would agree agree with the assessment that it's more a more enjoyable read and 
better at voicing the stories of the women than Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls. Although Pat Barker has a new book coming out in August called The Women of Troy, which I will still pick up and and, yeah. <laughs> and we will report back on how that is. My first recommendation is Lovely War by Julie Berry. Have you read this one? No, this one's been on my list for a while, and I can't decide if I want to listen to the audiobook because it's a full cast with narration and music, mm-hmm. I think, in the background, yep. or if I want to pick it up on paper. I think I went back and forth, and I think you would really like the the audio. And it has kind of a sweeping romantic feel, and the audio captures that really well. So this book, it's not a myth retelling, but it has mythological characters in it. It takes place during World War I, and we follow four main characters, Hazel, James, Aubrey, and Colette, and they are all involved in the war in in some way. And as we watch their stories, their love stories play out in World War I time, we also are going back and forth between watching them and being in a hotel room with a couple of Greek gods where the Greek god uh, Hephaestus has caught his wife Aphrodite cheating with another Greek god Ares. And he puts her on trial for her infidelity and accuses her of not being a good wife and not loving him. And to kind of make her point and justify her actions, she starts telling the story of Hazel, James, Aubrey, and Colette kind of to show how how love works in real life and kind of teach her, her husband and her lover a lesson. So it's really, really fascinating as we sit in this hotel room with these Greek gods, more gods are called upon to give testimony, and we see kind of how the gods, manip- not even manipulated, but played a hand in the lives of these four real people. And I loved that conceit of, you know, how if the Greek gods were still something people believed in, like how would... We think about the way they were involved in things like World War One or World War Two, and people meeting and falling in love. Like, what would that look like in a more modern atmosphere? That was really interesting. I also just think that the the story of the four characters is so good and romantic and tender and sad, and just it's, this is YA, but it feels like. A little bit heavier than a lot of YA in, in terms of its themes in a really good way. And then the the voices that she gave to the gods really enhanced the themes of the book. It I, I was worried that this was just going to feel gimmicky, like, oh, let's put gods in World War One. World War One sells well, Greek mythology sells well, we'll just merge them together and have a bestseller. But no, it really felt purposeful. Like, like these characters were all contributing to like a larger theme about love and war and grief and death. And I just thought it was really excellent. So that is Lovely War by Julie Berry. All right. This is not a novel, 
but it does sound really good. And I just, I don't know, I couldn't help but mix in a couple other formats in here. So XO Orpheus, 50 New Myths is edited by Kate Bernheimer, and it is a collection of myth retellings from pretty well-known writers. We've got Madeline Miller, Kevin Wilson, Emma Straub, and more, because 50, that's a huge collection. But I think that the title is interesting because EXO is a sign-off. It's like, goodbye. Sometimes we <laughs> sign our Patreon messages or something like that, EXO, Chelsea, and Sarah. And so EXO Orpheus is supposed to be a goodbye to the old way of myth-making. So these are freshened up myth retellings from popular authors. And this collection is from the same editor and sort of like in the same vein as My Mother, She Killed Me, My Father, He Ate Me, which is fairy tale retellings. So if you have read that or you have any familiarity with that collection, this one might be for you. So... I have not read this, every single story in this. I just recognize a lot of the authors. Um, I know that some retellings are updated. So for instance, an American soldier is in charge of designing some sort of Trojan horse. Um, and then we have Icarus flying. I mean, we have a lot of the characters that might be familiar to us if we read myths or we learned about Greek mythology in school, but they are updated in some way or retold in some way. And so I don't know, this is something I feel like would be really fun to have on the shelf and just kind of read every now and then, not necessarily read straight through. But um, I'm maybe because I loved Olympus, Texas so much, and I loved sort of digging back into looking up some of the myths that Stacey Swan was using. Um, it just kind of sparked my interest in mythology again. So that is Exo Orpheus, 50 New Myths. It is edited by Kate Bernheimer, and it's got a whole bunch of really great authors rewriting mythology. I used to keep that on my classroom bookshelf. In fact, I think I left it in, in the classroom when I left the school. But kids would love to pick that up. It also it just has a great inviting cover, too. And, you know, again, these, a lot of these teenagers now grew up with Percy Jackson. And flipping through those short stories was always really fun for them. So I would also... I I can't say that I've read every story. And so depending on the school that you're in, you might not feel comfortable keeping it on the shelf without doing that. But uh, it was pretty popular in my classroom. All right. My next one is a book that I just read this month and I really loved it. It is Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. And this is a retelling of Sophocles' play Antigone. So it's less, I guess, mythology and more a retelling of Greek tragedy, but I'm including it here. I think it counts, but it's different in that it's not about gods. It's about mortals. And it, the way Shamsi translates 
the story of Antigone into the contemporary world, I thought was just absolutely brilliant. And she does it in such a short book. Like I, I could not believe how much this book packed into it. So this is the story of three siblings, Isma, Anika, and Parvez. And Isma is, as the book begins, on her way to America. She's the oldest sister. She's been, you know, helping raise or, or really on her own, raising her younger twin siblings for much of her life. And she's finally kind of doing something for herself. And she's going to the U.S. to from London to get a Ph.D. And she, though, is very worried about about leaving her sister Anika behind because her brother Parvez has just disappeared. And we don't totally learn what has happened to Parvez until later in the book, although if you read the back cover, you'll get a spoiler. Um, But this family has been kind of closely watched by the conservative government in the UK because their father was a jihadist. And the family is Muslim and British, and they just have kind of been under close surveillance for for much of their lives. And that's just been a reality they've lived with. So for Isma to leave her sibling is very tough for her. And then this handsome man named Eamon enters the sisters' lives, and he is the son of a conservative Muslim minister in the UK, or like um, not a not a religious minister, but a government official. And so he really their their families don't have a good relationship, but he kind of brings this new um, perspective, but also tension to the sisters' lives as they get close to him. It is just, it's really fascinating. I don't really want to say more than that because if you know the story of Antigone, you will kind of be able to predict where where this goes. But if you don't, and I would almost think this book would be better if you didn't, not because Shamsi doesn't do a great job with it, but because there will be more surprises along the way that will really tug at your heartstrings. I, I just think it's really lovely what she does with the story and I the pacing is great. So I think go in somewhat blind. I will say that while I totally loved this book and thought it was a really, really, in my view, well done exploration of nationalism and religious tensions and wanting to be true to yourself and your faith at the same time and how that looks different for different people. I have seen mixed reviews from Own Voices re- reviewers about how well they feel Shamsi does at what at portraying what it is like to be a British Muslim. So I can link to some of those reviews in the show notes as well. I think that gave me even a better depth of understanding with this. And then you can decide if it's one that you want to read. But I, I really loved Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. All right. I made a last minute change here. And partly because Lovely War, 
every time I hear a description of that one or a review of that one, I think about a book that I read, goodness, a while ago, like quite a few years ago. So I don't remember it the best, but I remember really enjoying it. It is The Game of Love and Death by Martha Brockenbrough. And so this is not necessarily specifically a Greek myth retelling, but it feels mythological to me. So we have love and death, which to me just feels like the fates. And for centuries, they have been playing this game and they each choose a player. They have rules. They have dice that they roll for the game. They are sort of ready to influence their players in any way that they can to win. And death always wins. So some of the famous couples that they mention, Antony and Cleopatra, Helen of Troy and Paris. So there is this, you know, mythological tie, but it's it's mostly, I would say, about the fates. And so the story is about love and death, and they are choosing their characters again. They're choosing their players for their game. And we have Flora, who is an African-American girl who wants to be Amelia Earhart, and she performs in jazz clubs. And then we have Henry, and he is a wealthy white young man who, in the midst of the Great Depression, just has all these opportunities like college scholarships. But, of course, they're in a tumultuous time. And so love and death have to interfere and do their best to bring these two together and develop some sort of love story or story of fate for them. And I remember really enjoying it. Like I said, it's been a while since I read it. But every time that I hear of Lovely War and sort of that story within a story that wraps the Greek mythology around a real human tale, I think about this book. And yeah, like I said, it's not necessarily like you can't pinpoint, oh, this is based on this Greek myth, but it feels very much inspired by the fates and the way that the gods would influence humankind for their own entertainment in so many of the mythological stories that we hear. So that is The Game of Love and Death. And the author is Martha Brockenbrow. All right. My next book is Bull by David Elliott. And David Elliott is a poet, and he was actually one of the co-panelists at the Madeline Miller workshop that I mentioned earlier. This was a whole workshop about modernizing mythology, which was really cool. Bull is his novel in verse that retells the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. And David Elliott talked about the fact that at one point he was reading some mythology. He knew he wanted to do a Greek myth retelling for his next novel in verse. He also has a Joan of Arc story in verse, which is great. These are all YA, great books to bring into the classroom. But he came across the fact that um, the Minotaur's given name was Asterion, which means like son of the stars or gift from the stars or something like that. 
and that he he thought, wow, like somebody must have loved the Minotaur at first to give a baby Minotaur, a baby monster, such a beautiful name. And then what happened so that this creature ended up lonely, living in a labyrinth, and slaughtering youths every year, year after year. And he wanted to explore that story. And so he really goes back to the Minotaur's childhood and who loved him and who took care of him and how that all all changed. And I think he does a really beautiful job with this. It's a great exercise in, in empathy for this particular kind of monstrous character. The other thing he does so well, David Elliott, is that he gives each character their own poetic style. And there might be some free verse in it, but mostly he's using like real poetic forms that require a certain rhyme and rhythm and meter for each character and and each one is different. And he chooses them to in a way that tells you a lot about the character. Like one of the characters is a teenage girl and I forget the name of the poetic form he does, but it it's one that lets him kind of like lilt the end of the sentence higher each at the end of each line and just gives this the this voice to the character that couldn't necessarily come across in prose. So the poetry just feels so intentional. So I thought this book was really heartfelt, like it really moved me emotionally, which I wasn't expecting, but it's also funny and fun. And if you enjoy like books that experiment with form, this one does that in a really accessible way, like it's intended for young teens. And I think it'd be a great one to bring into the classroom to study poetic form and why poets might choose different forms for for a purpose instead of just memorizing different types of meters and not understanding why it matters. So I I love this book and definitely want to check out more of David Elliott's work. So that is Bull, B-U-L-L by David Elliott. I need to check that one out. I'm a sucker for voice. I love when authors pay such close, careful attention to their linguistics and down to the sentence structure and when you can really see the choices that they're making. I'm just all about that. So that sounds really, really fun and sounds like such a great classroom mm-hmm. addition. I think you would like it. And you, because it's it's short and it's in verse, you can read it in an afternoon easily. Okay. Speaking of a short book that you can definitely read in an afternoon, except that then it'll leave you so breathless and exhausted by the end of it. At least that's how I felt when I read Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. I couldn't stop reading it, but my gut was tight the whole time. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I had to turn the page to know what happened next, but by the end, it just kind of rips your heart out. And it is it is such a good book, but that is what the reading experience was like. So this is the 2011 National Book Award winner. And Jasmine Ward is just an iconic literary author. And so I don't know how much I actually have to say about this book, but it is based on the Medea myth. And Ward is on record 
about being inspired by mythology. And she says that Salvage the Bones, and I think she says some parts of Sing Unburied Sing are inspired by Medea. And she just really goes back to that myth for inspiration and thinking about her characters and thinking about storytelling. And in Salvage the Bones, this is a story that really centers on Esh, but it's also about her father and brothers and how she really holds the family together as a hurricane is barreling towards them and they are simultaneously trying to be kids, hide secrets, take care of each other, prepare for this hurricane. And it's just so incredibly well-written. And I don't know, I mean, it's definitely not the kind of book where you need to have any knowledge of Medea to read it or I mean you don't even need to pick up on that to get the most out of reading Salvage the Bones. It's just great on its own but if you do have that in the back of your mind and you can kind of see the inspiration that's kind of fun too. So Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward it's it's inspired by Greek mythology but it is definitely not a retelling. And I don't know, sometimes those are my favorite reads because it's like you get Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a mutual favorite of, of ours. I also love in this book, how Esh is studying Greek mythology in school. And so she thinks about it a lot and Mm -hmm. she connects it to, to her life in terms of, you know, she's trying to figure out what it, means to be a woman and she's seeing these examples in mythology and contemplating them and it's just it's really well done and oh, everyone should read that book it's so good agreed all right a much more polarizing book <laughs> i really love this one though is fates and furies by lauren groff have you read this one yeah and i was kind of in the middle, which I feel like oh, people weird. either, yeah, yeah, I know people <laughs> love it or they hate it. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, mm, I liked it. I can see why people love it. I can see why people hate it. But I didn't really have that strong of an impression. Maybe it's because I listened to the audiobook. Mm. I don't know if that experience changed things, but yeah, I kind of fell somewhere in the middle, which I know is odd. Yeah. That, yeah, this does seem to be one that people tend to have really strong reactions to. I will say that it's not one that I think about all that often a couple years after reading it, but it is one that I was just blown away by the craft of it and what Lauren Groff was able to do and really enjoyed it on, on that level. And like Salvage the Bones, this is not really a myth retelling, but I mean, we even get from the title, Fates and Furies, that there's some inspiration here from, from myth and and legend. And the the fates and the furies do kind of pop in every once in a while, if I'm remembering correctly, or are at least referred to often throughout the story about what the fates might do, or the furies about this couple, because that's what the book is about. It's about a couple. Lotto and Matilde, of course, they have these very kind of dramatic, fancy names. They are a dramatic, fancy couple. 
who are, they're both artists and Lotto kind of is struggling for quite a while and then really gets some acclaim as a playwright. And we see what that does to their marriage, to their relationship. And then we, halfway through the book, kind of flip and see things from a different perspective, which I just thought is a great structure and is something, you know, not wholly original. It definitely has been done again, but I think the way Lauren Graff does it is particularly brilliant. I also think that this book may be a touch inspired by the Narcissus and Echo myth. So that's the myth where Narcissus, who is this, where we get the the phrase narcissist from, was this beautiful youth who fell in love with his own reflection in a mirror. And this beautiful nymph named Echo fell in love with him, but could not get him to love her back and was then turned into a disembodied voice who could only repeat what he said all the time. And I I think that myth is so like ripe for psychoanalysis. (laughs) And there's just a lot of interesting things going on in that, that myth. And I can see some maybe shades of it and inspiration from it in Fates and Furies for how Lotto and Matilde's relationship plays out. So that's my own in- interpretation, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to offer it as a way of saying I think Fates and Furies is, is inspired by mythology as well. Are you familiar with the musical The Last Five Years? No. So when I read Fates and Furies, that's what was in the back of my mind. The structure kind of reminded me. I don't know. So the last five years, it's it's really a well-structured, interesting musical. I'm trying to get the... Um, okay, I was just trying to see the characters' names. So we have... It's just about a couple and... The time span that the musical covers is five years. You have Kathy and Jamie. And she starts singing at the end of their relationship. He starts singing at the beginning of their relationship. And then they move closer together. The middle of the show is their wedding. And that's the only time that they're singing on stage together. Otherwise, it's all solos. And then they cross back in. And so at the end of the show, she's at the beginning of the relationship. He's at the end of the relationship. And so you piece together what happened from their separate perspectives. And it just like moves in a crossed line like that. There was a Chicago production where they filmed it during the pandemic. Just, I don't know, it was the first time that I... I mean, I had heard the music before, but it was the first time that I had seen it and it was just really, really well done. Um, and so, yeah, every time I think of Fates and Furies, I think of that musical, but it, the Narcissus and Echo myth sounds familiar for both. So I'll have to check that out. That sounds really cool. And the music is really good. It's um, 
there's a, some like jazzy numbers and it's not like a big Rodgers and Hammerstein show, kind show of feel kind of no yeah. it's yeah. it's much different there's more folksy jazzy kind of a sound to it but the storytelling is excellent and I mean you can get the story just from listening to the soundtrack kind of like Hamilton yeah <laughs> because there isn't any there really isn't dialogue because mm-hmm. they're just singing their different separate perspectives and it's it's really if you like musicals I mean you'll probably like it because you like musicals but I just think storytelling wise it is really fascinating yeah that sounds really cool I'm going to check that out. You know, I love an interesting structure. Yes. Can't resist. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was quite the digression. But the next book that I want to talk about is Women and Power by Mary Beard. And this is not one that I've read. I've been meaning to read Mary Beard for a long time. Have you read anything by her? I've read snippets because I've have like gone into her books to try and find excerpts of various things to do with students. So a little bit, but I have not sat down and just read one of her books, which I would really like to do. So I think maybe the most well-known of hers is SPQR, which is her history of ancient Rome, women and power. The subtitle is a manifesto. And what she is doing is drawing lines from basically misogyny in ancient myth to misogyny in our modern culture. So she basically traces these origins from the Odyssey and how Penelope is mistreated and interpreted and how women have been excluded from leadership and how they've been... um, basically relegated to domestic life instead of being involved in civic life. And then she talks about Medusa and Philomela. She draws all of these connections up to female political figures of our day and just basically talks about those gender dynamics and power. And because her expertise is in ancient history That's where she's getting a lot of this from. And I think it's interesting that she's not just pulling from history, but looking at myth and mythology because the stories that get told over and over and over again live in our consciousness in really interesting ways and influence our culture. So that is Women and Power by Mary Beard. It is nonfiction. It's not a novel. It's kind of an outlier here, but she is a good storyteller. So if you like, manifesto style writing this one might be for you i am gonna have to read that soon i've been really craving nonfiction recently maybe i'll get that one on audio actually oh i bet it would be good on audio Mm -hmm. all right i'm gonna kind of mention two in tandem together these are both part of the canon gate myth series which is a series of books i don't think any have been published in a while But they have asked well-renowned authors to choose a myth and and rewrite it, kind of like the Hogarth Shakespeare series, but with myths. And the two that I've read and really enjoyed both were The Penelope Ad by Margaret Atwood and Wait by Jeanette Winterson. They're both short. They're both very mature, really evocative 
retellings of of myth. The Penelope ad I've read more than once, and so it sticks in my mind a little bit better. Wait, I only read when it first came out, and I have read almost everything Jeanette Winterson has written. She's one of my favorite authors, and so I know I really loved this book, but don't have much to (laughs) offer. It is a retelling of the Atlas and Hercules myth and is, I believe, um, set in a more contemporary time. Um, The Penelope ad is a retelling of the Odyssey from Penelope, Odysseus's wife's perspective. And I really, I feel like it is one of the not certainly not the first, but maybe one of the um, inspirations for maybe a lot of writers now who are retelling myths from a feminist perspective or choosing an a an overlooked woman from mythology and giving her a voice and letting her tell the story. I think the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood was, was one of the first to to do that in a really intentional way. And it's it's really good. I, I love that Margaret Atwood doesn't shy away from Penelope's sexuality and anger and all things that I think are very understandable within that the framework of that story, but are not granted to just pure and patient Penelope in the original, whatever original means in Homer's Odyssey. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's great. Like I said, this one is it's mature, unlike Circe or Madeline, unlike Circe or Song of Achilles, which I would hand to a teenager and have handed to teenagers. I would use a little bit more caution with the Penelope ad, but it's it's really, really excellent. And if you like Margaret Atwood's writing, you kind of know what what to expect with that one, too. Okay, the last book that I would like to mention is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. And this is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth. And I just think he is an interesting author to bring into this conversation about myth and retelling because I just think even his most popular works like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they're so rooted in mythology. And he's so interested in crafting these really ancient feeling stories. He is interested in exploring Christian mythology. And of course, here he is interpreting Greek mythology through sort of a Christian lens. But I don't think that you have to be religious or enjoy religion in order to read a C.S. Lewis book and get so much out of it just because he's a really talented writer and is just a, I don't know, I think he's a fascinating figure. We talked maybe just a tiny bit about him when we talked about The Lord of the Rings and his relationship with Tolkien. I don't know, I just think that group of dudes are really interesting to learn about. So Till We Have Faces, like I said, it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth, and it really develops a lot of backstory, but it's also sort of set in this other barbaric world. It's not necessarily set in ancient Greece, and basically where the title comes from is that 
we are not able to understand what the gods intend to do or what fate is doing until we have faces and until we are sort of honest with ourselves and understand our identities. So I don't know. It's just a very different kind of retelling. And I think it's like 300 pages. It's pretty short. So it's, I probably could also be considered a classic. I think at some point we'll probably read some C.S. Lewis, but Till We Have Faces is one of his mythology retellings. Yeah. This is one of my favorite books. I can't believe I forgot to put it on my list. Like of all time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really love it. I, um, this is a much longer story, but, um, I went to a religious high school, but got exempt from taking religion classes as long as I read things on my own. <laughs> and so I basically did like a C.S. Lewis deep dive and read this book and absolutely loved it. And then I read it again for a class in college called Discovering the Unconscious. So I read it in like two very different contexts, one looking at, at it as like an allegory for the mind and the other like just basically on my own, but certainly looking at it through more of a, a faith or Christian lens. And you you definitely don't have to, I think, be interested in Christianity to get a lot out of this book. It's just a fascinating story. And I think it's... I think it's one of his books where he, I don't know, is maybe a little bit more vulnerable about the role of doubt in a person's life and how doubt is maybe as important as faith in some circumstances. It's just really interesting. I I love it, and I think it's a, has beautiful characters and is just a really, really fascinating retelling as you said so I think we should definitely do it on the podcast sometime I was gonna say that sounds like we have it decided when we decide we want to read C.S. Lewis we have our book all picked out mm -hmm. yeah that's a good one all right my last one is a book that I haven't read yet I I think I mentioned it as a anticipated release in one of our preview episodes I know I've talked about it before. It is Never Look Back by Lilliam Rivera. And it is a retelling of um, the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, which is one of those like tragic. I mean, they're all pretty tragic, but <laughs> I find this one to be particularly tragic where you get so close to what is perceived as the happy ending and then it just slips through through your fingers, which you know, the, the best tragedies are always the ones that come so close to, to being happy. <laughs> um, this book also, from what I've read, kind of weaves in um, some Afro-Latinx myth as well. It features Afro-Latinx characters. And there's a young girl named Yuri who moves to, to the Bronx, and she is uh, this is after Hurricane Maria. She moves from Puerto Rico and she is kind of haunted by that 
that past, but she is potentially also literally haunted by something. And Fius, who is this really charming uh, guy who she meets in her new neighborhood, all he wants to do is help her and help her rid herself of these, these ghosts, but maybe can't quite do that in the way he thinks that is is right. And it just, it sounds really, really good. I think it'd probably be a great one um, to pick up on audio. I really tend to like YA on, on audio, so that might be something that I do. But I, I think part of the reason I haven't picked it up is because the myth itself ends so tragically. And I, <laughs> if this story ends as tragically, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. So one day I'll read it or if you've read it and um, I don't mind spoilers, you can tell me if it, if it ends more happily or not. I would appreciate that. So that's Never Look Back by Lilium Rivera. Oh, that's funny. Sierra. <laughs> As I was looking for books, one that, I don't know, it caught my eye because the cover is so interesting. I remember seeing it a few places on Bookstagram Lore. Oh, yeah. By Alexandra Bracken. Did you ever read that one? Yeah, I did read it and I liked it. Yeah, it is, um, It to me, felt very like Percy Jackson-ish. It's like gods among mortals and kind of like an urban setting older than, than Percy Jackson's intended audience. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one and also good on audio, but the hardcover has a great cover. So it's a tough it call. It is <laughs> a really good cover. And I think I saw in the blurb, I do think I saw Percy Jackson and the Hunger Games, yep. which the Hunger Games is also a myth retelling. Mm-hmm. And so it really is no wonder that doing a Greek mythology unit with ninth through 12th graders or whatever age you're bringing these into the classroom that kids are already excited about them because they've been getting these stories over and over again already. And it's easy to draw those connections. And if you're a grown-up mythology kid, then (laughs) it's really fun that all of these contemporary fiction and YA, because grown-ups can read YA, that all of these are coming out and publishing is really putting their weight behind these stories right now. It is so fun. Another set that I really want to read are the Stephen Fry books, Mythos and Troy. He's a great writer, and I'm sure he narrates the audiobook versions. Um, But yeah, those sound great too. Yeah, we're just, there's so many coming out. And like we said, it probably is driven in large part by (laughs) the market demand for it. But these kinds of retellings have been around forever and probably aren't going to go anywhere anytime soon. Well, Madeline Miller, I think she's working on a Shakespeare retelling right now. Mm-hmm. So if she could go ahead and move that along, please. Yeah, let's so get, we can that get market demand. <laughs> yeah, up. so we can get more <laughs> Shakespeare retellings. Let's let's get going. Come on, Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if anyone can do it, I think it's probably her. <laughs> yes. Well, listeners, as we said at the top of this episode, we host book club discussions on Patreon at patreon.com slash novel pairings. We call our community the Classics Club, and every month we share a literary class. So Sarah and I teach something super nerdy or something 
related to a classic that we're covering, all sorts of topics. And we have a book club discussion at the end of the month that's not usually contemporary. Usually we're discussing a classic from the podcast, but most recently we read Olympus, Texas and got to hang out with Stacey Swan. And we also share bonus episodes on Fridays. So if you would like to join Classics Club, we'd love to have you. You can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and join us there. We really want to hear about your favorite myth retellings and myth-inspired novels, and we love connecting with you on Instagram, so please share your lists or tell us in the comments of our post the books that you are reading and loving. We also love to see when and where you're listening, so take a screenshot of this episode, put it up in your stories, and tag us so we can connect. For additional bonus links and a peek at what we're reading every week, subscribe to our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode discussing The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Baker. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything.